Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Heralded as Super Lawyers Rising Star, the National Trial Lawyers Association Top 40 Under 40 Lawyers, the American Institute of Legal Counsel's 10 Best Attorneys in 2017 for Workers' Compensation, Luis focuses his legal practice on people who have been injured or disabled in serious accidents. As the managing partner of the firm, Luis works on the strategic planning of the firm and guides every aspect of the firm to excel in the overall mission of standing up for clients, standing by our work, and standing with each other. Luis began his legal career in 2001 as an intern and interpreter for the Chief Magistrate Court Judge of Clayton County, subsequently interpreting in civil litigation, mediations, and criminal proceedings. He joined a firm and rose through the ranks as a part-time interpreter in 2004 to the managing partner of the firm in just 10 years. With his broad range of experience, Luis understands million-dollar victories aren't like the movies one with a single flashy courtroom speech. Cases are won because of teams of experts who work together, determined to get the job done, and it takes a team of dedicated professionals to get the job done. Luis is the chief operating officer for, or managing partner for Bader Scott Injury Lawyers. He's also a member of the COO Alliance. Luis, welcome to the call. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, looking forward to this. So um, why don't you tell me how you got involved with Bader Scott and then just give us a quick rundown on what Bader Scott specifically focuses on and then we'll get into your role as really the managing partner or second in command there. Yeah, so um, I've had you know, a legal career for about 20 years. It started when I was an undergrad and, and just kind of started as a, in, in the reception, working, uh, interpreting and doing some, some you know, small tasks in, in a law firm. And and uh, I eventually went to law school. I became an attorney and was the uh, uh, managing partner of another firm uh, out in the West Georgia area. And uh, after uh, working for them for about 14 and a half years, I moved on uh, to kind of start my own thing. And the owner and founder of Bader Scott, which used to be called Bader Law Firm, uh, was a good friend of mine. And he was uh, looking to scale and grow. And, and he knew I had that previous experience with another another firm and, and, you know, just being friends, it kind of just developed naturally. And, and I went through the most grueling uh, interview process. I think I tell people all the time, if you think your interview process is difficult, you should have gone what I went through, which was like a four to five month uh, due diligence period for him. Cause you know, obviously we had a, a friendship. We wanted to make sure that, that we maintained that, but uh, yeah, we started off uh, uh, about two years ago and uh, the firm primarily focuses on injury work. So we represent people who were injured in in car accidents and work accidents primarily. Amazing, a four to five months due diligence process on hiring you, that's incredible. So how many employees were at the firm when you joined and how many are, are there today? Cause I know you guys are going through some pretty fast growth right now. Yeah, so when I joined, there was uh, 25 employees and um, it was, a, for me, it was a, a relatively big firm cause in the legal industry, there's not a lot of law firms that have 25 employees. I mean, those are, right. those are considered pretty big firms. And uh, today we have 150 full-time employees and 25 contractors. So about around 175 people that work for the firm. Um, and the contractors, you know, they focus on uh, some things that we could probably have in-house, but just strategically we have it, uh, you know, as, as third parties right now. So you guys are, are in the top, probably the top 1% of law firms in terms of size by number of employees, right? I, I think in the, uh, in, at least in the type of work that we do, we're absolutely in the top 1%. You know, there's some defense firms out there, the big corporate firms, you hear about these 
corporate firms around the country, they, they have hundreds and hundreds of lawyers that work for sure. those firms. But yep. in, in, in the kind of the individual, what they call the single event space, yeah, we're definitely one of the, the bigger players as it really set. Well, and what's interesting in your space is when you guys go through law school, they don't really teach you how to run companies, do they? Like how many, how many <laughs> courses on marketing and management and operations and people did you get? Yeah, zero. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. They don't, they don't teach you about running a business. You know, they te- in law school, they actually just teach you to go work for someone. You know, that's mm. the whole purpose of going to law school is, is how do I become a litigator? How do I go to court? How do I get the job with the big firm? Like they don't really tell you that hanging your own shingle and, and starting a business is actually part of the, uh, the recipe for success. So if you go out and you start on your own right out of law school, I mean, it is a, it is a grueling challenge to, mm. to really get off the ground because uh, you don't know anything. Nobody really trusts your ability to be a lawyer at that point. And uh, you don't have enough connections to really develop a, a book of business. So it's, it's very challenging. Well, it's interesting because I've been, I've actually been privileged to be able to work behind the scenes a little bit, coaching both you and, and Seth over the last six months. Mm-hmm. And then having you in the CO Alliance, I've gotten to see you guys a little bit. And I've worked with a few other law firms, but I've also coached some dental practices. And I think it's mm-hmm. very similar where, you know, in dentistry, they don't teach dentists how to become business owners, but, but you end right. up running a business. What do you think the big lessons are that you've pulled on your own? Because again, you're not learning it from the theory of the classroom. You're learning it from the practical what practical experience have you learned in scaling out a company that you kind of know to be true today? Well, you know, for me, it, I think that I came, I went to law school and I came into uh, both the previous firm I was working for and this firm with a different mindset. I, I never really wanted to be a lawyer per se. I, I wanted to, to run a business. I wanted to own a business. I, I always had kind of like that entrepreneur mindset. So I spent a lot of time, especially in my early 20s, uh, working with a, a business coach and he was a mentor of mine who used to say, you know, leaders are readers, you got to be reading and you got to be associating with the right people and you have to be, you know, doing things differently than other people do. So I spent a lot of time reading. I I think I've read 350 books. And I mentioned this to you the other day, you you told me I was crazy. I need to scale it down. But I I read uh, 50 books in 52 weeks. My goal was 52 out of 52. I ended up reading 50, uh, missed it by two books. And and I know your your advice is read 12 and (laughs) And, and I, I can definitely see a lot of value in that because you don't retain as much when you read as many books as, as I've been reading. But a lot of the things that I learned, whether it's growing you know, a, a business uh, or scaling a business has come through just reading. Uh, great mentors working with you obviously has, has helped a lot, learning a lot of different things, especially from the business operational standpoint. And that's really where we've gained a lot of the knowledge. Well, and I love the whole mantra of learn or um, leaders or readers that there is a lot of value in reading and reading books and it becomes part of that neuroplasticity. It just kind of sticks in the back of your brain and you pull it out when you need it. I guess where I like uh, people to be reading books is that if you're working on a project next month or next quarter, read some books or papers about that. You know, if you've got a board meeting, yeah. read about board meetings. If you're launching your marketing program, read about marketing. If you're working, you know, working on your interview process, read about interviewing. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe more of a focused approach to reading yeah. versus the randomness. So you're working with um, a CEO who's very classic entrepreneurial CEO. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. big, big picture, 30,000 foot, um, you know, big shiny object syndrome, very fast pace, works fast, thinks fast, talks fast, moves fast, very caring about people, very empathetic mm-hmm. with people. How, but you're, you're more of the logical, I think a little bit more left brain mm-hmm. to his right brain. You're, you're a little bit more process and uh, maybe analytical and, and you probably ask more questions. How have you kept in sync with, uh, with Seth, the CEO? How do you guys keep in sync? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from a from a just, I guess from a meeting standpoint, we meet every day. So, you know, we talk a lot. And so that has really helped uh, us to really stay in sync. We, we have a, a weekly meeting that we have on Wednesdays. It's supposed to be a two-hour meeting. Usually it lasts four hours. And we talk about everything. You know, we really want to have a good gauge of how the business is running. But I think what's, what's interesting about um, Seth in particular is that he is a visionary. And he absolutely comes up with all kinds of creative ideas. But he's also really uh, passionate about the work itself. So he'll get in and he'll really work uh, the systems. And he'll really try to figure out things on his own. Um, and so he's very involved and hands-on in, in that sense. Uh, but in order to stay in sync, you know, I, I, I have what's called the, the CEO funnel. Um, you know, you, you gave us the, uh, the decision filter. That's been huge for us, um, especially in the last couple of weeks as we've really started to, to organize our projects. And uh, just having him funnel all of his ideas uh, through, a, through a funnel and putting it on a piece of paper and then meeting about it later has been instrumental for us for really staying in sync uh, and really kind of developing the vision and, and for the business. Uh, both both short term and long term. So. That's cool. I'll actually I'll link to that decision filter in the show notes. It's um it's a model that I'm constantly kind of working on and revising. But it basically takes an idea and tries to flush out the idea into, you know, it's a great idea, but what's it going to look like when it's completed? And what are all the inputs? How much time is it going to take? How much people is it going to take? How many hours is it going to take? And then what what are the the ROIs we're going to get off that mm-hmm. to allow you guys to say whether or not you want to green light, yellow light, or red light the idea. You know, green light right. meaning, yeah, let's do it. We'll put it into the plan now. Yellow light means, yeah, it's a good idea, but we're not going to do it this quarter. And red light means, yeah, maybe it wasn't such a good idea, or maybe it was a good idea, but not now. And you right. just delete it. So, yeah, it's a great system to use with him. And then the, the meetings you said as well, it sounds like you guys have really done, done well at that. Any secrets on how you've worked on, you know, maintaining, you guys have such a great relationship. How do you maintain a good relationship during those stressful times? Yeah, I, you know, there was, a, there was a couple of books that we've both read. Um, one of them was Radical Candor, and it was just about having those like, tough conversations, but doing it in truth. And I always say that truth uh, is not effective unless it's done in love. So you have to have truth in love. And I think that for us, the, the business comes number one, right? I mean, that's like the first priority for us. But because of our previous existing uh, friendship, the friendship has actually become number one. So it's like, how do we make good decisions for the business, but also maintain the integrity of the friendship and the relationship? That can be tricky sometimes because we're not the same person, right? So we're going to dis- disagree on, on different things and, and different strategies. But I think when you look at it from that viewpoint, really, if you look at it from a relationship standpoint, like how do we maintain the relationship in the midst of disagreement? It makes things a lot smoother. And uh, since I'm always looking at it through that lens, if I have a disagreement with him about something, I'm always going to ask myself, how do I disagree in love and not be defensive and also not be uh, offensive to him and, and attack him for what he believes. And I think he does the same thing. And that's, I think that that's why it works so well for us. Yeah, that's huge. And I, I love that you actually read the book Radical Candor and applying that. I love that you're trying to do it within a, kind of a frame of love versus because the, the relationship can really get destroyed very quickly if we don't approach it that way. Mm-hmm. We need more than ever, I think the CEO needs to have the second in command being the naysayer, asking the tough mm-hmm. questions, confronting the brutal facts, you know, kind of the emperor's new suit, right? Showing them mm-hmm. that at times their ideas aren't that great, but it's also doing it in private versus with the rest of the team around as well. Are you, are you pretty cognizant of that as well? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I always tell him, I, I don't, I don't dissent in, in public with him. You know, I, one of the things that I, that I, strive to do in any conversation if we're in a group meeting let's suppose that there's it's us two and the leadership 
and he comes up with an idea, uh, I always say, that sounds like a great idea. Um, we definitely need to flesh it out. Let's talk about it. And then when we meet afterwards, I'll say, dude, that idea is not good. Like we can't do that for this and that reason. But you know, the thing is that it doesn't happen that often. He actually has a lot of great ideas. For sure. And so really it's more of like, how do we, how do we accomplish all of the great ideas into, into like, like a reasonable timetable? Um, and so it, that makes my job a little bit easier. But when I do have to disagree or I do have to like push back, it's always better to do it outside of that context because I never want him to lose his uh, authority. I never want him to, to I, I don't want to create the perception that me and him are not unified. And if you do that in public, you're going to create that perception. And I think it's just bad for the morale of the business. Well, I think, as you said, that your, your role really is to make him iconic, to make him look good. Your job mm -hmm. is to shine a spotlight on him and make him look good. And his job is to shine a spotlight on you. So if you need to be that dissenting opinion, doing it privately is often way better than doing it publicly. Of course. Sure. And, you know, and the thing is, you know, as creating that, that, that um, value for him in the company actually makes his ideas resonate better because then the leadership is more on board because the, the second in command who I am, you know, in this relationship is on board. And so I think it's really just good for the business. Totally. What do you think he noticed in the four to five months due diligence? First off, what was he looking for? Or what was he trying to figure out? And, and what do you think he noticed that allowed him to want to move forward with you? I think that, that because he was a visionary, he was looking for somebody who could implement. And um, we knew each other from, from many years before that, right? A couple of years. So he, he already knew my mindset. We had already had a lot of conversations regarding my strategy and what I would do. And I think in that four to five month period, he was actually calling people, asking them what my reputation was in the community. What was my reputation in the legal field? What was my reputation with my, my employees? I found this out after the fact. I didn't know this, but he actually called a couple of my previous employees who worked for me and asked what kind of person was he? What kind of leader was he? So that's, I may have been scared on the front end if I would have known he was doing that, but uh, uh, it, he didn't, he was not, you know, dissuaded by anything he heard. And, and so I think that that was good, but I think he was just looking for somebody who could take his vision and implement it. And th the thing is that, that really that's, that's hard to judge in any interview or any kind of, you know, you can call the references in the world and it's really hard to judge if somebody's an implementer until you put them into that, into that role. And then you see if they can implement. But what he did is prior to, to actually hiring me on, he, he, he said, what would be Luis's plan once he steps in the Vader law firm day one, what does he do? And so I wrote a three page plan. And I said, this is, this is what I would do. These are the things that I would implement. And this is what I would start off with on day one, six months later, 12 months later, and 18 months later. And he liked the plan. And so we did it and we started implementing it. That's interesting. I love, I love that approach as well. Do you use a similar approach now when you're hiring key executives or key employees into the firm? Have you got a good system, an interviewing system? Yeah, we have. So we have a hiring funnel that we developed uh, over the last probably eight months that we use. And it takes people through several rounds of interviews, several rounds of, of assessments that we do. But for our key positions, absolutely, we ask them to, to provide a work product. You know, right now we're in the middle of, of hiring a data analyst. And uh, the first thing I said, he already had gone through a couple of uh, rounds of interviews. And I said, before we hire you on, we're 95% of the way there. I'm going to send you a, some data sets and I want you to analyze it for me. And I want to see your thought process. Like, I don't want to hire you on and then find out that it was a total disaster. Let me know now if it's going to be a disaster or if it's going to be something that we can work with. So we sent him the data sets and now we're just waiting for him to, to analyze it and come back with the presentation. So we, especially for our high level positions, we do that. 
So in, in growing from 25 employees up to, to 150 plus, you know, plus all the, um, the freelancers or, or fractional people, you've got to have made some mistakes on the hiring front. What did, what did you learn from those? What mistakes did you make? Because that's really rapid growth. Yeah. Uh, do, do you want to know just the general mistakes or you want me to tell you stories? Because there's some hilarious stories. Give, give us, some, give us a sure. couple of the good ones without names. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so some of the mistakes that we made is, is not, not following the process, right? Because once you develop the process, the process is meaningless if you don't follow it. And yep. uh, we had a guy interview and it was, it, this is a funny story. We, we have him interview. Uh, he seemed like just the kindest man you'll ever meet. He told us a story about how he was uh, taking care of his wife. That's why he was not working for the last two years. She was uh, ill and she, you know, he, that's why he didn't have a, any kind of record for work and employment the last two years. And I mean, it was really a sad story. I mean, he talked the talk, he walked, he came in, he was dressed in a suit. He had his books that he had read. He was quoting all kinds of like positivity. And we're like, we got to hire this guy. Like this guy is everything we want, you know, for this position. And uh, within a couple of months, we knew like this was terrible, a total disaster hiring this guy. Well, what happens is the guy runs out of gas um, on the way going home. So one of our employees goes to go help him put gas in his car and the police are there. And uh, the police is there because he didn't want to run out of gas. What actually happened is he had bumped somebody in the gas station and the police was called because he had caused an accident. And the reason the police was there is because he had a warrant for his arrest and he was being arrested for violation of probation because he was out of work for two years because he had actually, he had burglarized somebody at a wow. store. <laughs> yeah. So, so my whole point is what we learned is we probably need to do the criminal background check sometime before two months, you know? Well, um, and, and also to really probe, right? Because everybody, people can be really good at embellishing and creating a yeah. story, but you need to probe around that story. Yeah. So it's, it's, but, but it awesome. was, a, it, yeah, it was a, it was a funny story. I mean, what's worse about it is that the guy was, he was in his mid fifties. He actually, the, his crime was that he, he stole a purse from underneath the bathroom stall of a woman who was using the bathroom at a Walmart. So it was, I mean, it's the most bizarre type of crime you can think of, you know? So, um, but, but we learned, you know, we got to do those criminal background checks on the forefront. We changed our funnel on the forefront, you know, like you said, to ask more probing questions. And uh, that was, that was a big learning lesson for us for sure. On our, our, um, our June event, which this broadcast will probably come out just before our June CO Alliance event, the whole theme is recruiting, interviewing, and selection. So I hope you'll be there at that because it's going to be some Absolutely. good content around that. So yeah. talk about transitioning. You know, we're in this, the middle of this whole COVID-19 crisis or kind of mm -hmm. coming through where businesses are allowed to start opening again. You guys went virtual pretty quickly. Can you walk us through what happened and how fast and what did you learn from being able to, to transition a law firm, which would mm -hmm. never have people working remotely? How did you guys do it? It was actually a very scary thing. We didn't know what was going to happen uh, in that transition. We didn't know if we were going to lose business. We didn't know if how people were going to feel. You know, we, we always tried to be cognizant of kind of like the emotional uh, component to, to what we do and how we phrase things and, and any kind of um, notice that we send out. Over the weekend, we had worked on a task force because we heard that it was coming down the pipeline, that the governor was going to shut down the state. And we wanted to be prepared. Um, there, there's a, a concept, you know, business readiness. Uh, Cy Wakeman talks about that in her book, Reality-Based Leadership. And we wanted to get people ready. So we got together the leaders over on a Saturday and we put together a plan. And then on Monday morning, we heard by the end of the week, everything shut down. So we said, you know what, we're going to shut it down today. We're going to just get this out of the way. We're not going to wait until the announcement comes. And that Monday uh, at our morning huddle, we do a huddle every morning at 848. We did the huddle and we said, by the way, 
we've made the, the executive decision to send everyone remote. So what you're going to do today is you're going to get all of your things together. You're going to pack it all up. You're going to unplug it and you're going to go home and we're going to work there. And I mean, everybody just started scrambling, you know, wow. to make that happen. And so within a four hour period, we had everyone from the office in their home with their computers. That's pretty extraordinary. Again, for a law firm to be able to make that transition. Do you think you will ever hire remote employees now? I think, I think that the opportunity to have remote workers is definitely there, right? I mean, the, the, the problem is that right now clients, they accept that you're working from home because of this situation. But once this situation has, you know, mostly gone and, and, and the fear is not there anymore, they want to come in. We have so many clients that want to come into the office and see the attorneys face to face and you know, when it comes to depositions and mediations and just legal work going to court, you have to show up. And so right now, a lot of those things are being postponed. You know, the, the, the courts aren't even open. So it's easy right. to say, hey, we don't need to meet. The court's not open. Um, I don't think we have that opportunity. But there are some back and office workers that we had never considered sending remote that now it's very likely we can send them remote. Or a possibility too, right, as well? Yeah, yeah, of course. So you said that you really wanted to run a business when you were, I guess, even in law school and that you got a business coach. What was it that got you to have a business coach so early? Um, it, it actually was uh, not by design. It was, uh, I just kind of stumbled across it. Um, I was in my 20s. I was playing baseball at, at, at the University of West Georgia. Uh, I knew my career was ending. I was graduating. I had an accounting degree. And um, it was somebody that, that uh, my dad knew and uh, he kind of took a, a liking to me and he was like, you know, hey, I, I want to help you. And he was just teaching me business concepts. And he started telling me those things about leaders being readers. And I started having an interest in in reading. So it was it was actually by by accident. But the desire to be in business was something that I've had from a young age. I mean, I, I remember my my first uh, my first uh, hustle was when I was in high school. I I washed both of my parents cars. I uh, cut the grass in the front and the back. Uh, a yard, the front and the backyard with the push mower. I, I even uh, dry cleaned, I'd say dry clean, but it was really, uh, I ironed all of my parents' clothes and I did it for the grand old sum of $20 a weekend. So, that, but you know, that was the thing that got me energized was just like earning that money and having that, that business. So I just always had that kind of spirit, you know, to want to own a business. So once I had the attraction to, to law, I knew that I wanted to own a law business. Mm. You guys are different from a law firm in a lot of ways that I think you're really focused on your employees and your people and your culture. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, culture to us is everything. And we believe that uh, creating a place to work where people enjoy working is, is probably up there with generating revenue and uh, developing profit because uh, our greatest impact is absolutely on clients because we represent thousands of them. But, our, but our, our, the depth of our impact can be felt really through our employees and uh, something that I say on our Friday huddle uh, every week is that you only have one life experience and our goal is to make that experience the best possible experience. And so we're always looking to make it the best experience possible for our employees, because if we do that, you know, they become the extension of who we are. So if our vision is to help thousands of people and, and we're, we're accomplishing that vision through our people, we want our people to feel good about what they're doing. We want them to be happy to come to work. We want them to be excited about who they work with. And so we spend a lot of time doing events. We do quarterly events. I mean, until, until the coronavirus hit every quarter, we had a, a department event for each department. And I think that that really helps gel the team together. 
Mm, that's cool. Talk about um, about your skills that you've grown over the last couple of years. I mean, you know, taking the firm from 25 to 150 employees, your skills as a leader have clearly had to adapt and change. Where, where do you think you've grown and what have you worked on over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, th- that is, you don't really realize your shortcomings until your business starts generating that, that amount of employees. When you start really adding that many people, you start seeing where you are, where you fall short. And one of the things or one of the areas where I really uh, fell short, and I didn't know this prior to this experience, was, was really in having those tough conversations with people. Mm. Because at, at some point, we're, we're all human beings. We, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, firing people's not easy. Um, I'm telling somebody that they're not meeting their objectives. That's not easy. And if you don't develop thick skin, you're going to internalize everything. You're going to take everything personal. And it's easy to take something personal and hold that when it's one person. But when you're having to deal with 150 different connections, 150 different relationships, 150 different emotions, uh, nobody can hold that, that burden. And so you have to start developing yourself uh, as a person, not just a leader, but as, as an individual, you have to become very strong in who you are. And so in this last year and a half, what I've had to do is kind of separate myself as, as, a, as an emotional person from the logical person and say, you know, this is not about them as a person. It's just about the business. And when you do that, it makes it a lot easier to have those tough conversations. So that was really a growth point for me. Uh, it's interesting. I've, I've had a few people over the years think that fast growth must be easy. And they think that, you know, that a tough times is hard, but you know, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we had six consecutive years of 100% revenue growth. And I assure you, it's not easy. It's very different and difficult at times. Was there anything that you found difficult in that really rapid growth that you maybe didn't expect? Um, yeah, I mean, the relationships are probably the most difficult thing. Uh, space, needing space for the for people, needing needing to uh, be a better cash flow manager. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you're small, uh, you, you don't really have high months of expenditures because you're a small business. But at one point we were spending $350,000 a month, just ordering furniture, just ordering computers, you know, and, and, uh, in our, in our practice, just for context, we're a contingency business, which means we bring in a lot of business, uh, but we don't make money when that business comes in. We make money six to 10 months later. Wow. So and you really so, have to manage cash flow. Oh yeah. Managing cash flow when you're, when you're rapidly growing is like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the most important thing. Cause like by the time that money comes in, uh, it, it could be, you could be in dire you know, situation if you don't manage it pro- properly. So. Yeah. I've always said that cash is like kind of your oxygen that when you're small, you know, if you're tight on cash, you put it on your credit card, you don't pay yourself for a month or two, you borrow money, whatever you're good. If you're a little bigger, you kind of go get a credit line, you talk to the bank, you're, you know, you're pretty much okay. Maybe you need some money from mom or dad. One eight hundred got junk at one point. We need to borrow 420,000 from Brian's mom just to meet payroll. <laughs> Wow. You get to a point where all of a sudden, if you're sucking oxygen, you're dead. Yeah. So what do you guys do to measure or to manage cash flow? You said like, as it is so critical, what lessons can you share with us on that? So for us managing cash flow, we've, we've used uh, several things. Obviously having a line of credit has been good, especially in the highest uh, growth periods where we've, we've been able to kind of uh, use the line of credit to, to manage our cash flow. But one of the things that, that I've instituted is, is paying down, it's really three strategies, but paying down uh, debt in a more, or I say debt bills, paying down bills in a more systematic way. I think a lot of businesses, when the bill comes in, they pay it immediately, even though it's not due for 30 days. We really like to take like an approach of looking at the overall health of the business and determining whether that bill needs to be paid right now or not. And 
maybe you don't, maybe that's not the recommendation you give in a very, you know, evenly growing company, but in a fast growing company, you have to kind of watch your, your expenditures. Uh, the other thing that we've done is we've tried to grow larger than our capacity, right? So like our production team can only handle so much, but we grow bigger than our production team. That way we're not, we're not hiring so many people. I mean, which sounds kind of funny because we hired 125, 130 people oh, I in get a short it. period yeah. of time. You know, so that's, that's kind of what we've done. Jim Collins in Good to Great talked about a no faster than number that they would grow at a certain prescribed rate and they would grow no faster than that. Do you manage to that number at all or something like that? Knowing what we, your cash or capacity can be? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't really know that concept. Um, it, it actually, it wasn't until recently in a conversation uh, we were having uh, that, that I heard that concept before the no faster than number and, and, I, and I went back and looked at it. But I, I think we just felt it. Uh, I didn't know what it was, but we knew if we grow faster than this, we're going to be hurting. And so we started, even before coronavirus, we started scaling back on our marketing because our marketing was just working too good. Like it was bringing in way too many cases. And so we had to scale back because we realized we were going to, we were going to suffer uh, a cash flow problem, a cash flow crunch if we didn't slow down. So I think just organically, we figured that out and, and we realized we can't really grow in terms of new clients to X our production team, because then they become, it, it suffocates the process and it suffocates their cash flow. Um, mm-hmm. And so we realized about one and a half X our production capacity is what we can grow uh, with our, you know, cash flow constraints and, and the contingency practice that we're in. Is there anything you guys are restrained um, at being a law firm in terms of running a business? Are there any additional regulations or things that make yeah. running a business inside the legal space different or harder? Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest one is access to cash. I mean, we can't, we can't go and get a, raise a series A of, you know, $5 million and have investors. The only people that can invest in our business are lawyers. And so there's not a, there's not a, like, a, like a bank of, of lawyers out there looking to invest into a law firm. Um, there may be some around the country. It's just not a very expansive list where if, if I had, if I came to, to most investors and I say, Hey, investor, I have a $30 million business. I want to take it to hundred million. Are you willing to invest in my business? It would be easy to find people to do that. Uh, in the legal space, it's very challenging to, to raise money. So you have to cash flow it or hope that the bank loans you some money. Um, mm. So that, that's a huge challenge for us. That makes sense too. Now, in terms of your growth going forward, what do you think you're going to be focusing on growing your skill set going forward? I, I, me personally, growing yeah. as, a, as a person? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I think what, what, what I need to, to grow at as an individual is, is understanding my role as the business transitions. I, I think that we wait too long to redefine ourselves as leaders in the business. You know, we, we, we wait until it's absolutely necessary and I right. want to get away from that. You know, you kind of, we're to, reacting to it instead of being proactive. So where are you proactively working on a couple areas now? Well, right now I'm, uh, I'm trying to get out of the doing the work and more in being the visionary for the operations. And so I'm reading a lot of books about scaling, a lot of books about operations, a lot of books about mindset, and just trying to figure out what is the right mindset for CEO, COO, excuse me, what's the right, you know, uh, 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 concept that I should have for my team? How is it that I should relate with them? And how can I connect with them better? So that when we have the right people in place, they're the ones doing the work and I'm overseeing the operations versus hands-on. Cause right now I still am somewhat hands-on in a lot of the operational components of the business. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. I think there's, um, I've, I've had a saying for a couple of years, it needs to get done, but not by me. 
Right. Um, and then I had a client that I coached a couple of years ago who was brilliant. She would sit down on Sunday night and spend a half an hour coming up with an all-inclusive list of all the core stuff that she wanted to get done over the next week. And then she would look at each item on the list and figure out how many minutes or hours each item would take. Mm -hmm. She would add up the total time. Let's say she came up with 60 hours worth of stuff. She would then force herself to delegate 80% of those hours to other people before wow. she allowed herself to work on anything. Yeah. I mean, that's a great strategy. It was I really mean, great. It was so simple, right? It's like I, all this stuff needs to get done, not yeah. by me. Who can do all this stuff? And I'll just work on these things. And she would just repeat that process every week, which allowed her to stay in her unique ability to be grow, like focusing on growing her team, focusing on delegating and coaching. And it's a really interesting strategy. It's so simple. Yeah, but you know, the thing is to do that strategy, you have to have confidence in your team. And I think that a lot of times uh, we, we don't delegate and we don't give it to people because we don't feel that sense of confidence. And we really need to hire the right people to make that happen. And so uh, one of our focuses this year moving forward for the business is just making sure we have the right person in the right seat and hiring the right talent so we can have that confidence to really just hand it off to them. Well, and we're, it's interesting. We were at a CEO Alliance event last year and one of the seconds in command that was there said, we were talking about, you know, the leader's job is to grow people and we always have to be mm -hmm. growing the skills of our people. And somebody threw their hand up and said, what about if we hired people that really focused on growing their own skills all the time? Like we really hired mm -hmm. self-driven learners. So they can, I'm like, wow, that's pretty smart actually. Like as a behavioral trait to look for those self-driven learners who already have the skills to do what we're hiring them to do, mm -hmm. but they also have that desire to keep learning as we scale. It just seemed like a really smart one. You know, one of our core values is growth. And in our interview process, we ask people, what do they do to grow? And you'd be surprised how many people say they read but then you find out they don't actually read. And so if you could find people like that, that are actually self-motivated to grow, your business would abs absolutely double, triple, and quadruple. It's how do you weed out the people that are truly telling you that they grow and the people that only just say that they grow, you know? And, and that's a, a hard one. Yeah, well, some of it is just, just really, really looking for the proof of what they're telling you they can do mm -hmm. and not settling on the fact that I like them or they have good energy or they have the right answers, but it's really proving out those answers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you can find, I think that one of the, the follow-up questions that, that I like to ask when a person says, yeah, I grow by reading. I usually ask them, well, what book are you reading right now? And a right. lot of times, a lot of times they don't even, they can't remember the book. Or, and what did you so learn from that know. book? And what are you putting in place from that book? Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was interviewed a guy years ago. His name was Christopher Bennett. And in the job interview, in the, in, in the group interview, it came out that he spoke four languages fluently, had played cello in a symphony orchestra, had written two speeches for Canadian prime ministers, had been on rock and roll Jeopardy, had managed a bar, had been a pro surfer, um, and at least two or three other things that I was just like, I don't know, man, but if you're this good, I want you. But I wanted proof. <laughs> So I said, I needed proof. And he goes, for what? I said, these 10 things and I need it by Friday. He goes, I can't prove that by Friday. I was like, I gotcha. He's yeah. like, I need till Monday. I'm like, all right, you got till Monday. <laughs> he came in Monday morning or Monday afternoon. He had surfing magazines with his photo in it and his name. He wow. had the two black line documents that he'd written for Jean Crutchen and Paul Martin, Canadian prime ministers that had published in McLean's magazine in Canada. He had two people in our call center interview him in French, Italian, and Spanish to prove that he spoke those three dialects and clearly he already spoke English. He proved everything. I'm like, dude, right. this is incredible. But I'm like, but then it was like, well, do people like you or are you such a <laughs> Renaissance man that they hate you, right? Because he can't compete. Right. So I called his current boss at the time and he stood beside me as I called his boss. 
And I called this guy, Mark Hamilton from H careers, the CEO of H careers. I said, I'm calling about Christopher Ian Bennett. And he said, Oh my God, you've got my best guy. Wow. But it's, you know, it's only when you do that real digging and it's only mm-hmm. when you find that real proof, then, then, you know, yeah. so it's good that you guys are uncovering that and forcing that system. And you said something earlier that, you know, the process is only good if you follow the process. That's right. But you know, a lot of times we, we, we deviate from the process because we're in such a need to ha- like, we want that person to be the one, like I know. we just, we want them. We, we want it so badly. I think that sometimes, you know, we're so stressed about our job and our work and the project and we just want the person to be the one. And so yeah, we just there. skip stuff. Yeah. I mean, we just skip stuff and just hope they're the one and then they end up not being the one. And then we're, we're having to start not even from ground zero. We're having to like tear down the building and then re- redo it. You know? So do you have a system to help prevent that from, from hiring the one that isn't the one? You know, I, I have found that even using our, our hiring funnel, it's not perfect. I think that we're about 70%. Uh, so 70% of our, the people that we hire stay at least one year, um, which that's not the ultimate benchmark for me. I, I always feel like if we can keep an employee three years, we, we're going to profit uh, from the work product of that employee. Yeah. And, um, but, but the one year mark is, is crucial because it's much more likely you can get them to three years if you get them to one year. Right. So, uh, right now we're around 70%, uh, but it hurts because the other 30% usually leave you within the first three months. You just literally wasted so much money on that person. They're not oh, even trained. Yeah. You know? the, the, the cost of the, just the interview time and the recruiting time and the onboarding time and the training time and the cycle time, and then having to do it again, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. All right, Luis, if we were to go back to the 22 year old, you, you're graduating from accounting, getting ready to, or actually, let's say you're graduating from law school. Mm-hmm. What word of advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true now, but you wish you'd known when you were just kind of coming out of school, going into the workforce? I would probably say, uh, be more patient and show more grace on yourself. Um, I think I put a lot of stress to uh, achieve things that weren't really achievable in a short period of time. And recently, I heard that uh, many people overestimate what they can do in a year, but underestimate what they can do in five years. And if I could tell my, my 24, 25 year old self, uh, some advice, I would say, give yourself 10 years to become an overnight success. You're going to enjoy the 10 years, you know, you'll enjoy it better and, uh, you'll have a lot more fun and you're going to get there. Uh, so just be patient with yourself. That's so. great. I heard somebody one time say it, it takes a long time to get to the night before you become the overnight success story. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So Louise Scott, managing partner for Bader Scott Injury Lawyers. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.